0: Welcome to the Meeting the Moment podcast, a show featuring stories by Stanford students about how they are meeting big moments in their lives. I'm Emma Master. Stories have the power to teach us, heal us, guide us, and even inspire us to change. Stories engage the big unanswered questions we all face. Each episode of the show corresponds with a monthly theme and each story recounts meaning made of a challenging moment. All the students featured are fellows in the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life at Stanford. It's June 2022, our theme is embodiment, and Alina Wilson, class of 2024, has a story about that. It's called Missing Beat. The blazer was black and a little plain, but it looked really good on my shoulders, which was rare for me. Years of competitive sports had given me broad shoulders for a woman. So when I slipped this blazer on over my blouse, I felt like Olivia Pope, or maybe Michelle Obama. I couldn't name a single thing consultants did, but I knew that I was ready to be one. It was the second summer of the COVID-19 pandemic, and my friends and I had just moved to New York City. I was the only one out of all my roommates working for a corporation in the heart of Manhattan. My friends actually nicknamed me corporate that summer. At 8 a.m. every weekday, I would make the trek from our apartment to the subway station, while my friends worked from home on their laptops, I would melt into the energy of a fast-paced city full of busy and important people. When I clipped my office badge to that black blazer and speed to 10 Hudson Yards, I felt like one of them. My office became a place of wonder and imagination for my roommates. The coffee bar in the office with baristas who made drinks to order, the break rooms where employees could go play Mario Kart during the workday, and a view of the sprawling city of New York from 45 floors up. After a few weeks, one of my friends couldn't stand the mystery. So can I see your office, corporate? The lobby looks more like a mall entrance than a place of business, with an incredibly high ceiling and impossibly shiny floors. As we walk past the concierge desk, she says to me, Alina, you work here. And I look around at the opulent lobby and think, yeah, I guess I do. We stroll slowly to the elevator as she looks around with wide eyes. It's the type of elevator that's so nice that they don't even try to fit all the buttons on one display. The system is entirely digital. You touch a clear glass surface, swipe your company badge, and then press the number for your floor. We get into the elevator and we're up to my floor in maybe 30 seconds. It's the fastest elevator I've ever been in. My sensitive ears don't even have time to pop. After we raid the snack bar, I look over to her and say, let me take you to my spot. I take her to this corner office with a literal treadmill in it. Glass, floor to ceiling windows on two sides of the room you can see the entire skyline. I've spent so many hours holding LaCroix in one hand and typing on my company-issued laptop with the other while looking at the whole city spread out in front of me. But I take this moment to really look at my surroundings. And that's when I realize I'm living a very New York City kind of life, the kind of life that people watch TV shows about. My life outside of work is similarly cinematic. We dance the night away as we hop from club to club. The night never ends before 3am because there is always another adventure down the block. One night my friends and I are invited to this party with some other college students in the city. My roommates blast music while they spend hours choosing their outfits, pre-gaming with cheap vodka and sharpening the wings of their eyeliner. I am sitting on the couch watching them buzz around me. They belt out Lizzo and talk about the amazing night we're going to have. And I smile and try to imagine going to this fun party in Brooklyn. I cannot imagine standing, much less walking, three blocks to take the two train. I sit on the couch feeling like dead weight, literally and physically, as I tell them that I can't go. When they come back, they find me on the couch watching Netflix where I had lain for the past few hours. They tell me of the best party they had been to since arriving in the city. And I nod numbly because I don't understand why for those few hours I could not imagine getting up. Don't understand how this body that had thrived or at the very least survived on four hours of sleep every night for the majority of high school could no longer find the energy to stand. There's another story on the flip side of my fast-paced New York City life. It had started earlier that year in January. At first, it wasn't really noticeable. I didn't have the words to describe it. And then, general malaise, chronic fatigue. But the problem with these conditions is that they can be caused by anything from inadequate sleep to anemia to Lyme disease. My reliable body, this body that had hit home runs and pulled all-nighters and broken school records, begins to fail me. Despite my illness, I decided to follow adventure, to go to New York City. But I start having to leave in the middle of my workday to go see doctors. They say to me, usually when we see symptoms like yours we think depression but you're looking vibrant and i nod because yeah i'm having the best time of my life or i should be after i get a full endocrine workup done and all my lab results come back normal the doctor looks at me and says we don't have enough data let's wait till your symptoms progress And that's how I got into a holding pattern of waiting as it became harder and harder to function each day. I become deeply familiar with the idea of brain fog. Some days I get out of bed and stare at the bathroom mirror for 15 minutes. I simply forget what comes next. Another day, I wake up to blurry vision that does not correct when I put my contacts in. I stumble into our company elevator that day. I am 20 years old, and my body is falling apart. One day, after the exhaustion completely overtakes me, I call into work at 7 a.m. I sit in the stairwell outside of our apartment to avoid waking up my roommates. I call my project leader. He picks up on the third ring. I pause, unsure, and then tell him that I can't come in to work today. There's silence on the other line for a second before he tells me to take all the time I need. I nearly cry in relief. As I hang up, I fall back onto the cold steps. I feel lost and fatigued and scared. I realize that I don't really have anywhere to turn. I start seeing different doctors for different symptoms and collect referral after referral. It's so stressful being in a big city, being sick, being 1500 miles away from home. I have no idea what I'm doing. The doctors always have new tests they want to run, but nothing comes back conclusive. I've tried an internal medicine doctor, urgent care, an endocrinologist, the list goes on. I haven't really shared how I'm feeling with my friends in fear of breaking our New York City fantasy. I realize in that moment that I'm all alone in this. So I make a choice. The white walls of NYU Hospital make me feel as if I am lost in a labyrinth. And I may as well be. I hear patients talking on the phone, patients crying, patients groaning, doctors calling in orders, nurses swarming around everywhere. I spin in a circle and watch the chaos unfold around me. I call my aunt who lives in DC and I'm talking fast and I don't make sense and I'm panicked because I feel overwhelmed by the weight of my illness and the frantic energy of the hospital. But I tell her I need her. And she hops on the next train from DC, and she's there with me in the hospital a few hours later. She takes one look at me sitting on the hospital bed and pulls me into her arms. She squeezes me tight against her chest, and it's such a relief just to let myself be taken care of. After I tell her the story of how I ended up in the hospital as best as I can, she helps me fish out my work laptop and compose the email. It's almost a relief when I press send and officially quit my internship. I feel like I've been carrying the weight of the world on my fatigued shoulders. Adulting felt so glamorous to me until it didn't. A few days later, I board a plane back to Oklahoma with my mom, and I spend the next few days recovering and reviewing my treatment plan. Once I have the energy, I walk around my parents' house. I feel the mixed fiber carpet under my bare feet. I notice that the house, now pushing 25 years old, looks older and smaller than I remember it being. I look out the window from the living room to the now overgrown front yard where I used to play obstacle course on the swing set. And I can't help but think how quickly my world has shrunk. In the span of only a few days, a few hours by plane, I have gone from having the greatest city in the world at my disposal to having only this space right here. The green clock my family has had since before I was born ticks loudly. I can hear the light purr of the air conditioner that protects me from the heat of the Oklahoma summers. The house is empty and quiet and old, and I wish I could hear my roommates laughing. I scroll through Netflix on the living room television. I click past hundreds of shows. Hours later, I realize that none of them are appealing to me. Watching TV about life in the Big Apple could never compare to living it. I lay back on the purple couch in the living room and I think to myself, what do I do now? Eventually, I go back to pacing around my childhood home and I stop at the door to Jonathan's room. My heart starts beating a little faster as I remember how intensely Jonathan used to guard his room. He had this keep out sign on the front door. I was never allowed to enter unless he specifically granted me permission to do so. The front of his door is bare now. There is no trace of his teenage angst on the white painted wood. I turn the handle and enter. Jonathan had moved to California years ago. His snake, his childhood pet, is now gone. But most of his room is still intact. Venus flytraps and pitcher plants crowd his windowsills, gleaming plaques line his walls. The bed is pushed off to the corner of his room like an afterthought. Ringing the room is insulation to keep the sound in that my dad had installed after one too many noise complaints from the neighbors. But the insulation never worked that well. Or maybe the drums are just too loud of an instrument. It sits proudly on a square of raised carpet at the center of the room. Auburn colored drums with large gleaming cymbals and a black leather stool, a drum throne. I sit down. I tentatively place a foot on top of the bass drum pedal. I rest my other foot on the other pedal I grab the drumsticks from where they lay neatly on top of the snare drum. I take a deep breath and I start playing. I don't think it sounds good. I'm sure it doesn't sound good. Every time I start playing one rhythm, I accidentally change it slightly the next time around. I keep hitting the rims of the drum rather than the center parts, and I'm gripping the drumsticks so tightly that I think that they might snap in my hands. But I play faster and faster. I feel the crash of the cymbals and the unsteady beat of the bass drum in my body. My mind goes blank and I give up on keeping a pattern. I give up on rhythm, I make noise, and I feel powerful. Each hit of the drums is a revelation because I am free of pain and fatigue. I am all energy and I feel fiery and bright and physical in a way that I haven't for months. When I stop playing, I take a moment to wipe the sweat from my brow. And I have this realization that this is the first time I've had a free summer in maybe 10 years. I had spent the last decade filling my summers with leadership programs and athletic training camps and academic competitions. Maybe this extra time is actually a gift, a chance to become someone I've always wanted to be and to do the things I've always wanted to do. That's when I decided to learn to play the drums. And after Jonathan told me that there was no way I could learn how to play without taking lessons and that Jonathan way of his, I called the School of Rock on North May Avenue and bought a four pack of drum lessons. Let me see you hit the hi-hat. I stare blankly at the bald man in the collared blue shirt and khakis who is to be my instructor. He points to the mounted set of cymbals. I smile gratefully and hit it tentatively, unsure what it's supposed to sound like. After we identify all the parts of the drum set, and it's more complicated than you'd think, he writes out eight numbers on the whiteboard in a small square room. He then fills in a strange pattern of numbers in the two lines below. He explains that the top line corresponds to the recently identified hi-hat, the middle line to the snare and the lowest line to the bass drum. Then he has me play a simple eighth note groove. When I finally match the hi-hat and the bass drum and snare, I realize that I'm playing a really slow, shaky rendition of the intro to Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. I smile and stop so I don't mess it up. My instructor looks at me and says, we can work with this. You've got rhythm. I can teach you to play the drums. Sometimes playing the drums felt like beating my head against a wall over and over again. It was easy to feel like I wasn't making any progress at all. Three lessons in, I bite my lip in concentration and try to play four on the floor for the millionth time four on the floor sounds like disco. It makes you want to dance. The bass drum is a relentless heartbeat. The two four beat on the snare naturally makes you want to snap and sway. The hi-hat holds the whole thing down with steady eighth notes. At least that's what it's supposed to sound like. I sound like what my five-year-old cousin sounds like when he comes over to play the drums. Cacophony with absolutely no rhythm. My calf is tired from trying to keep the beat on the bass drum, and the notes are blending together. I stare holes into that whiteboard as I try and fail to coordinate my hands and feet. I hold the drumsticks in a death grip. Finally, my instructor puts me and my straining calf muscles out of my misery. You're a perfectionist, aren't you? I nod because yes, I definitely am. I have been since I was a kid. My instructor looks unsurprised. I can tell. Alina, no one cares if you miss a beat, even during a performance. The drums have to be steady and mostly consistent, but no one notices a small mistake. Drums hold the song together. You just have to keep playing. I couldn't approach learning the drums the same way I approached learning in school. I couldn't strong arm my way into being good at it. At some point, the more focused on perfection I became, the worse my playing sounded. And my instructor wasn't afraid to call me out. Pause, Alina. I need you to imagine that you're playing for your friends. Don't you want them to think you're cool? Relax when you're playing. Try to look cool. I stare another hole into the whiteboard as I work on our most complicated rhythm yet. It's a funky beat. Eighth notes on the hi-hat accenting the down beat, two and four on the snare drum, one, the and of two, and three on the bass drum. My instructor tells me this beat is from Jungle Love by Morris Day in the time, But that song came out in the 80s, so the reference means nothing to me. I try to play the beat anyway, but my brain cannot compute. The bass drum notes keep sneaking up on me, but that doesn't stop me from trying over and over again until my instructor stops me. Close your eyes. You know what I'm asking you to play. Just flow with it. I close my eyes and give it a shot. And it flows out of me. My mind and body had known the beat the whole time, apparently. I glide through that beat for one, two, three repetitions straight, and even when I place the bass drum on beat four instead of beat three, I hop back on. I'm learning. I sit on the drum throne and look over at my instructor, who sits at the drum set across from me in the room where we had our lessons for the past six weeks. You're still playing really stiff, he mimes my playing, by playing with his shoulders near his ears and his arms wooden rather than relaxed. I feel a bit offended, but I smile anyway. You're getting there, he tells me. The rhythms that we play that day are the last I play for months. Are you sure you're ready for this? No one would blame you for taking a light load or even a quarter off. It's the morning before I catch my flight back to Stanford. My mom is looking at me expectantly, and I don't know how to answer. I feel... fine. For the past few weeks, my energy levels have been normal more days than not. I mostly feel like myself again, but I'm not sure if I'm ready to be a student after over a year off. Six weeks of recovery doesn't really compare to over six months of declining health. When I throw my backpack over my shoulders and step into the jet bridge, I hope that I am making the right choice. I was thrown back into school as soon as I arrived back on campus. I looked pretty hard for a drum instructor at Stanford. I scrolled through our course catalog and did a double take when I realized lessons cost $750 for 10 weeks, double the cost of lessons in Oklahoma. The lessons didn't end up working out. But I still listened to music like a drummer. Now when I absent-mindedly listened to music while studying, I'd tap out rhythms. I'd try to identify the beats that I knew how to play and imagine what it felt like to play new ones. I still felt like a drummer even if I didn't have time to practice. But at some point, I let go of the more creative part of myself and switched into pre-med mode. Oh yeah, so my experience as a patient inspired me to become pre-med. i had never felt as much uncertainty as I did in the throes of my illness that summer. Yet, when I was finally seen by the emergency room doctors in NYU Hospital, I felt like someone had thrown me a lifeline. As they listened to me, evaluated my symptoms, and came up with a plan, I felt like they were reeling me in from somewhere far, far away. I wanted to be on the other side of that experience. I wanted to go into medicine. Mostly, I felt really happy with my decision to become pre-med. Now is not one of those times. I sit in the lecture hall and stare blankly at my organic chemistry exam. My heart plays four on the floor in my chest. Normally I sing absent-mindedly as I take tests and the answers just flow out of my pencil. But staring at this midterm, my mind feels completely blank. I flip from page to page, looking for a question I know how to answer. The more I stare at them, the more I'm sure I've never seen these molecules in my life. I keep waiting for myself to suddenly remember all the exam material. I never do. I call my mom so she can be there to comfort me when I finally find out my score. I look out upon the sprawling green of Stanford campus and open grade scope on my laptop. And then a laugh bursts out of me as I pull up my graded exam. So you did well then my mom says and i laugh again and say nope i failed and i send her a screenshot of my graded exam and the 58 out of 100 to prove it when she asks about the curve i just let out a deep sigh the median was a 90. this is the first time i have failed an exam since sixth grade it might as well have been the first time ever the future medical school applicant in me Is screaming at me to react, to scream and to cry and to question my future prospects as a doctor. But I don't. I stare at my graded exam blankly. And then I just kind of sigh deeply and slump against the back of the bench where I sit. I tap my leg with my hand the way I do when I'm deep in thought. It's not that I don't care. My grades still matter to me, but they aren't me somehow. They aren't a measure of my worth as a person or even as a student. I know that I studied incredibly hard. My mom asks me how I am. I find myself telling her that I'm good. When I hang up a few minutes later, I am surprised to realize that I was telling the truth. I remember my drum instructor. It just matters that you get back on. Keep the rhythm going. And as silly as it might sound, I realized that this test was kind of like missing a beat. Or honestly, it was technically worth 20% of my grades, so it's a bit more like missing a whole measure or two. But I have a choice to make. I can either pick up the beat as quickly as I can and continue to hold down the song. Or I can give up in the middle. It wasn't even a question. I stayed in the class, and it was tough. I studied all the time, and even though my professor spent most of class pointing at the most complicated PowerPoint slides I had ever seen in my life, I got back on the beat. I loosened my grip on the drumsticks. I remembered to smile for style points, and I picked up right where I left off. I know what you're thinking because I know what I'd be thinking. Personal growth is great or whatever, but did I pass the class? Is this a story of success or failure? Did I make an epic comeback and crush the class or did I end up failing? If I learned anything from playing the drums, it's that deciding to start playing again is the hardest part. It can be so much easier to stick to the rhythm you know you can play well, but you don't learn that way and the stuff that happens right after you pick up the beat again? Like my drum instructor says, as long as you keep going, no one remembers that part anyway.